0: If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful. Beneficial. Empowering. Hello. We start the program today with a poem by Robert Frost. See if you can work out the connection to our ongoing talks on the adverses verses of mind training. In particular, maybe you can use this as a test to see if you remember what we were talking about last week. The poem is called Choose Something Like a Star, and it goes like this. O star, the fairest one in sight, we grant your loftiness the right to some obscurity of cloud. It will not do to say of night, since dark is what brings out your light. Some mystery becomes the proud. But to be wholly taciturn in your reserve is not allowed. Say something to us we can learn by heart, and when alone repeat, Say something, and it says I burn. But say with what degree of heat, talk Fahrenheit, talk centigrade, use language we can comprehend, tell us what elements you blend. It gives us strangely little aid, but does tell something in the end and steadfast as Keats' Eremite, not even stooping from its sphere, it asks a little of us here. It asks of us a certain height. So when at times the mob is swayed to carry praise or blame too far, we may choose something like a star to stay our minds on and be stayed. This is an engaging poem on many levels other than the obvious one of the poet trying to get material information from a star. It addresses man's constant need for some kind of affirmation as he looks to a higher power, like God or science here represented by the star. This keeps the mind more grounded and calm and also helps to avoid emotion-charged and often unreasonable responses that harm both oneself and others. The poem suggests a way to avoid being overcome by things like the worldly concerns. Although the lofty presence be it a star or a god, perhaps in our case a Buddha, doesn't have much to say when we pray for proofs or signs. It does serve as a beneficial focus for our minds when others, the mob in the poem, lather us with worldly concerns like praise or blame. The focus may be the transcendent thing itself, like the star god or Buddha, or something that we are taught by the presence of that lofty one. But in either case, we, as spiritual practitioners, can use it to keep our minds stayed, which in the poem is the word STAID, meaning sedate and respectable, and therefore not overexcited or depressed, while we can also recall the homonym STAYED, meaning to be held firm, unmoved, or to be checked and restrained. But enough of Robert Frost and taciturn stars. Now let's turn our mind to the motivation for participating in the program today. Once again, please try to have a bodhicitta motivation that wishes our participation to be a cause for our enlightenment so we can lead all others to enlightenment as well. As I pointed out last week, this is the best kind of motivation because its object is so very vast, that is, all living beings everywhere. So let's try for that, or otherwise at least for our own liberation. Thank you. Now the eight worldly concerns come in the last verse of Tampa's text, the eight verses of Mind Training. If you have been following the program, you will have some idea of the text, but for those who are new to the program, the short text we are investigating runs like this. Determined to obtain the greatest possible benefit for all sentient beings who are more precious than a wish-fulfilling jewel, I shall hold them most dear at all times. When in the company of others, I shall always consider myself the lowest of all, and from the depths of my heart hold others dear and supreme. Vigilant, the moment a delusion appears in my mind, endangering myself and others, I shall confront and advert it without delay. Whenever I see beings that are wicked in nature, and overwhelmed by violent negative actions and suffering, I shall hold such rare ones dear as if I would found a precious treasure." When out of envy, others mistreat me with abuse, insults or the like, I shall accept defeat and offer the victory to others. When somebody whom I have benefited and in whom I have great hopes gives me terrible harm, I shall regard that person as my holy guru. In short, both directly and indirectly, I offer every happiness and benefit to all my mothers. I shall secretly take upon myself all their harmful actions and suffering undefiled by the stains of the superstitions of the eight worldly concerns, may I, by perceiving all phenomena as illusory, be released from the bondage of attachment. We are, as you may guess, on the last verse, which mentions the superstition of the eight worldly concerns, which we talked about last week. Now, if we look behind the eight worldly concerns, what do we find? Let's take, for instance, praise and blame, seeing as Robert Frost schooled us on them in the, at the start of the program. If someone blames you, perhaps unfairly, even for something you didn't do, what arises within you? Isn't it something like, Don't accuse me of that, I didn't do it, how dare you? Standing proud and indignant and very, very solid, your sense of I, of me, appears, doesn't it? Now keep that in mind, and now let's look at what happens when someone heaps praises on you. Oh, you're so wonderful, you're so beautiful. You're so wise and clever. I wish I could be just like you. Stuff like that. Now what's going on in your mind? Look at the eye that appears and laps up all this praise, really gets into it and feels very inflated. Isn't it the same eye that flew into a hissy fit when you were blamed? Can you see how this eye appears to be the same eye that drove you as a kid, as a teenager and as an adult? And how it appears to have a lasting quality not changing instant by instant, and it stands alone, not depending on anything else. Do you get this sense? So behind blame and praise, and in fact all the worldly concerns, is this strong sense of I that loves gain, pleasure, fame and praise, and abhors loss, pain, disgrace and blame. If you don't believe me, sit in meditation one day and imagine yourself in eight situations, each one giving rise to a different worldly concern within you. When the worldly concern is strong, check what is standing behind it. You should find a sense of the strong, solid, unyielding eye. But now, if we try to actually find this eye, to find out what it is and what it's made of, we come up with a phantom. It has no substance at all. It appears to exist very solidly, but put out a mental feeler and you can't touch it at all, You can't even describe it. Does this mean that actually there's no I, that it's just a mirage in the mind? Well, if you think that, give yourself a slap in the face. Not too hard, but just enough to feel the sting. You felt it, right? Surely if the I was just a mirage of the mind, you wouldn't have felt that slap, that sting. But you certainly did. And you could quite validly say, Ouch, I hurt myself. There is an eye that is hurt, but it's not the eye that overreacts to the eight worldly concerns. It's quite a different eye. So we must be very careful here to understand that there is one type of self that appears but does not exist, and another one that does exist. What we're talking about is not the existence or non-existence of a self, but the way the self exists. When it appears in one guise, it does not exist in that way at all. When it appears in another, it does exist. The way that it does not exist is as an independent, inherently existing and permanent object. It appears like that, but it does not exist like that. The way it does exist is a label on a base. Let's take a factual look at ourselves. We have a body and a mind complex that in Buddhism we designate the five aggregates, that is form, which means the body and the forms that it interacts with, feelings, perceptions or discriminations, all the other compositional factors that make us up, and consciousness. On this collection, we label I. This collection came together through a number of causes and conditions, like the ovum of the mother and the father's semen merging, the nutrition, air and warmth necessary for the fetus and later for the person to exist and so on. So what we find in analysis is a collection of causes and conditions and parts with a label that some mind has given it. Look closely and you will see that this collection changes instant by instant. For instance, your heart is beating all the time, sending blood through your body. Never is there a static moment where the heart and everything else rests. Your body is changing instant by instant. Also look at your mind. Can you find a time where everything is still and unmoving? So this self is an ever-changing dependent collection of aggregates and nowhere can we find the I that is independent, inherently existent and permanent. Well if this boggles your mind, just think of your body. It's made up of a trunk, arms, legs and a head, but more subtly of skin, hair, nails, muscles, bones, heart, lungs and all the other organs as well as liquids such as blood and so on. And we can get even more subtle and see it as a combination of elements or even atomic and subatomic particles or energies. Now where is the body that is independent of everything, inherently existing and non-changing? But how do you actually think of the body when not analyzing? Doesn't it appear as unitary independent and unchanging. When you look in the mirror in the morning, don't you automatically think, this is the same old face I saw yesterday and the day before? Of course, it's not the same face that I saw when I was 15 or younger, but the changes appear to come in spurts. For a while you see the same face, and then suddenly you notice another wrinkle, another white hair. But these have been evolving all the time. They don't just suddenly appear out of nowhere, as they seem to. Emptiness of a person means that there is no inherent independent existence of that person. That person is empty of such an existence and only exists as a collection of causes, conditions and parts with a label. That is not how the person appears to us. It appears as a real, independent and inherently existing being. But that's an illusion. And that is why Langri Langritampa says to see all phenomena as illusory because everything exists in the same way. We perceive things to exist as independent, inherent and not changing instant by instant. In other words, existing from their own side. But they are all dependent, not inherently existing and impermanent. Sanghi Kadra in her commentary explains it by means of a flower. She says... When we walk into a room and see a flower in a vase we instinctively perceive the flower as something permanent, unchanging existing all on its own as if it did not depend on anything else for its existence. It seems very real, concrete, out there existing in and of itself almost as if it's saying I'm a flower, I've always been here and always will be here, just like this. This is how the flower appears to us and we believe it to exist in this way. But this way of appearing and the actual way the flower exists are quite different. In reality, the flower is impermanent, dependent on various causes and conditions, and not existing in and of itself. The flower came into existence dependence upon a seed, soil, moisture and sunlight. It grew little by little, and when it was in full bloom, someone cut it and placed it in a vase. Its existence is also dependent on its parts, stem, petals, leaves, as well as on the cells and the atoms that make it up. When first cut, the flower was fresh and beautiful, but as the days go by, it withers and turns brown, and soon it will die and be thrown away. That is the true story of the flower, but that's not what we see when we look at it. When we look at it, it seems to be permanent, unchanging, and independent of everything else. Furthermore, our mind grasps at the object being a flower from its own side, not realizing that flower is just a name people have given to a certain phenomenon with certain characteristics, and that people of other languages would call it by other names. So although there appears to be a real, solid, permanent and independently existing flower existing out there, in and of itself, when we investigate and search for such a flower, cannot be found such a flower is an illusion like a dream or a rainbow it appears but does not exist the way it appears but this does not mean that there is no flower at all there is a flower an impermanent collection of parts that came into existence independent on causes and conditions is changing and will go out of existence and to which we give the name flower that exists but not the permanent, independently existing flower that we perceive and grasp at when we say, Oh, isn't it beautiful? She then continues, In the same way, all things appear to be permanently, inherently, independently existent. But on closer examination, we realize that they exist in a completely different way. And that is their reality, their true nature, being empty of inherent existence. So what, you may wonder, why should I be concerned about this? We should be concerned because this tendency to perceive, believe in and grasp at things as truly existing or inherently existing lies at the root of all our problems. Fear, worry, frustration, dissatisfaction, loneliness, grief, pain and all the other myriad problems and sufferings of mind and body that we experience are caused by this attitude which, in Buddhism, is known as self-grasping ignorance. We all have the potential to enjoy everlasting peace, bliss, wisdom and freedom from all suffering, the state of enlightenment or Buddhahood, but we are unable to attain this as long as our mind is caught up in ignorance and does not understand the true nature of things. Sangya Kadro says that this self-grasping ignorance permeates everything we experience, including ourselves. She says we hold on to self-limiting concepts about ourselves believing that mistakes made in the past have become permanent aspects of our personality. These permanent faults become the basis of low self-esteem and even self-hatred obscuring our potential to be pure, perfect and free an enlightened being. All this arises from ignorant misperception. Moreover, we tend to cherish our sense of self as if it were the centre of the universe. Out of this strong self centeredness we develop desire and attachment for people and things that make us happy and support our sense of I. We have aversion and fear towards people and things that disturb us or threaten our sense of I. And we are indifferent towards whoever or whatever neither helps nor harms us. Believing all these people and objects to also exist in a real, permanent, independent way further intensifies our attitudes of attachment and aversion. These attitudes disturb our mind and motivate us to create negative actions or karma, such as harming our enemies and lying or stealing to benefit ourselves and our loved ones. And this karma is the cause of suffering and problems in the future. Self-grasping ignorance is also the main factor that keeps us circling in samsara, the cycle of death and rebirth. And that is why, we should be concerned about our tendency to see things as truly or inherently existent and why we should learn to perceive things in their correct way as empty of inherent existence or, as it says in the verse, as illusory. Perhaps a simple way to understand this is by thinking of the analogy of a rainbow. Due to certain conditions in the atmosphere and the play of sunlight and moisture, a rainbow appears in the sky. Although it looks so real, we would like to touch it. It is insubstantial, momentary and completely dependent on causes and conditions. It exists for a while and then disappears. Everything else, all conditioned phenomena, inanimate and animate, can be compared to a rainbow. Although most things last longer than a rainbow, the way they exist is similar. They arise due to the coming together of different causes and conditions, exist for a while and then Again, due to causes and conditions, they go out of existence, so, like a rainbow, they are illusory, empty of permanent, independent, substantial existence and that is Sange Cadro. so imagine yourself as a rainbow made of streams of light from the sun, travelling through the air, and then reflected through drops of droplets of moisture that are evaporating constantly. Can you feel the constant movement, the constant change? Can you understand that you only exist through certain conditions coming together? If there was no sun, no rainbow, no light, no rainbow, no moisture, no rainbow, no air, no rainbow, and so on. The rainbow is completely dependent and take away any one condition, it would not exist. On top of this, why are you called a rainbow? Is that inherently your name? No. My mind or your mind or both our minds label you rainbow. That is why you are a rainbow. The view that the rainbow exists independently and not labeled my mind is illusory. His Holiness the Dalai Lama relates these last lines of the verse to meditation and post-meditation practice. He says, In the Buddhist teachings on the ultimate nature of reality, Two significant time periods are distinguished. One is the actual meditation on emptiness and the other is the period subsequent to the meditative session when you engage actively with the real world, as it were. So here, these two lines directly concern the way of relating to the world in the aftermath of one's meditation on emptiness. This is why the text speaks of appreciating the illusion-like nature of reality because this is the way one perceives things when one arises from single-pointed meditation on emptiness. He goes on, In my view, these lines make a very important point because sometimes people have the idea that what really matters is single-pointed meditation on emptiness within the meditative session. They pay much less attention to how this experience should be applied in post-meditation periods. However, I think the post-meditation period is very important. The whole point of meditating on the ultimate nature of reality is to ensure that you are not fooled by appearances which can often be deluding. With a deeper understanding of reality you can go beyond appearances and relate to the world in a much more appropriate, effective and realistic manner. I often give the example of how we should relate to our neighbours. Imagine that you are living in a particular part of town where interaction with your neighbours is almost impossible and yet it is actually better if you do interact with them rather than ignore them. To do so in the wisest way depends on how well you understand your neighbor's personality. If, for example, the man living next door is very resourceful, then being friendly and communicating with him will be to your benefit. At the same time, if you know that deep down he can also be quite tricky, that knowledge is invaluable if you are to maintain a cordial relationship and be vigilant so that he does not take advantage of you. Likewise, once you have a deeper understanding of the nature of reality, then in post-meditation, when you actually engage with the world, you will relate to people and things in a much more appropriate and realistic manner. When the text refers to viewing all phenomena as illusions, it is suggesting that the illusion-like nature of things can only be perceived if you have freed yourself from attachment to phenomena as independent, discrete entities. Once you have succeeded in freeing yourself from such attachment, the perception of the illusion-like nature of reality will automatically arise. Whenever things appear to you, although they appear to have an independent or objective existence, you will know as a result of your meditation that this is not really the case. You will be aware that things are not substantial and solid as they seem. The term illusion therefore points to the disparity between how you perceive things and how they really are. His Holiness goes on further to explain the meaning of illusory but it gets a bit complicated. So turn up your attention radar and hone in. When he talks about true existence here he means independent, inherent existence. The one that we have previously said had has no reality. He says, To explain the meaning of illusory here True existence appears in the aspect of various objects, wherever they are manifest, but in fact there is no true existence here. True existence appears, but there is none, it is an illusion. Even though everything that exists appears as truly existent, it is devoid of true existence. To see that objects are empty of true existence, that even though true existence appears, there is none, it is illusory, one should have definite understanding of the meaning of emptiness, the emptiness of the manifest appearance. First, one should be certain that all phenomena are empty of true existence. Then later, when that which is absolute nature appears to be truly existent, one refutes the true existence by recalling one's previous ascertainment of the total absence of true existence. When one puts these two together, the appearance of true existence and its emptiness as previously experienced, one discovers the illusoriness of phenomena. Do you get that? He goes on, If you have realized non-inherent existence well, the experience of existent objects speaks for itself. That they exist by nature is refuted by logic, and you can be convinced by logic that things do not inherently exist. There is no way that they can. Yet they definitely do exist because we experience them. So how do they exist? They exist merely by the power of name. This is not saying that they don't exist. It is never said that things do not exist. What is said is that they exist by the power of name. Now this is a difficult point, something that you can understand slowly, slowly through experience. First, you have to analyze whether things exist truly or not. Actually, findably or not. You can't find them. This is actually what we did when we looked at the blamed or praised I that appeared to exist so independently and concretely. When we looked for it, we could not find it. His Holiness then goes on, But if we say that they don't exist at all, this is a mistake because we do experience them. We can't prove through logic that things exist findably, but we do know through our experience that they exist. Thus, we can make a definite conclusion that things do exist. Now, if things exist, there are only two ways in which they can do so either from their own base or by being under the control of other factors, that is, either completely independently or dependently. Since logic disproves that things exist independently, the only way they can exist is dependently. Upon what do things depend for their existence? They depend upon the base that is labelled and the thought that labels. If they could be found when searched for, They should exist by their own nature, and thus the Majamika scriptures, which say that things do not exist by their own nature, would be wrong. However, you can't find things when you search for them. What you do find is something that exists under the control of other factors, which is therefore said to exist merely in name. The word merely here indicates that something has been cut off. But what is being cut off is not the name, nor is it that which has meaning and is the object of a valid mind. We are not saying that there is no meaning to things other than their names or that the meaning that is not the name is not the object of a valid mind. What is cut off is that it exists by something other than the power of name. We are going to have to leave it there because now time is up. Thank you very much for joining us today and I hope you have a wonderful week. Please dedicate any positive potential from our time together to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings thank you and goodbye thanks for listening to this free fm podcast if you want to hear more content like this you can support free fm via patreon head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more